0: You're listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast, a conversation between audience and artist intended to demystify and celebrate the classical music and opera art form. My name is John Jacob. The Thoroughly Good classical music podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes and Audioboom. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the series via your preferred app so you'll get an alert every time a new podcast is published. This podcast is also a mild but pleasurable labor of love for which any support you can provide would be very much appreciated. To contribute to its ongoing development, visit thoroughlygood.me and click on the donate button. I've got to eat after all. cast number 40 in this thoroughly good classical music podcast series features an interview with cellist Joy Lisney who appears at the Purcell Room at the Southbank Centre on the 8th of June in a recital of Bach, Chopin and Brahms with her piano playing father James Lisney Joy it seems to me is no sloucher she composes she conducts she plays the cello and she cycles a lot. Uh, and perhaps that shouldn't have surprised me in the way that it did initially, because there's a down to earthness about that range of activities which I find quite refreshing. Whilst I have no intention or remaining time available to squeeze in an early morning run, for example, possibly is more down to motivation more than anything else. Uh, I like the way that activities which are seemingly at odds with our perception of an individual's work or identity actually complement a musician's life, pointing to something far more holistic. There's another thing worth noting about this conversation which has slowly dawned on me listening back to it and others I've recorded since this one. It is the unease around discussing detail in classical music and actually any subject come to that i often sense in an interview that i sometimes need to give permission to a contributor to go a little deeper into the detail too and at the same time as giving that permission i also recognize i'm experiencing a kind of imposter syndrome perhaps even a nosiness asking the question as someone who loves the genre I always want to know more and more detail, because by appreciating more and more the finer detail of what's going on, then I can arrive at a deeper understanding of the art. So on that basis, expect detail on sound production, other cellists, Joy's compositional process, her take on female composers, including the questions not to ask a female composer, which you'll be glad to hear I didn't ask, by the way, and some valuable insights into the role of a conductor and the way they sometimes have to communicate to their players. Uh, what? What other breakfasts do you have, please? I'm
1: quite boring breakfast, though. I usually go for the same thing. Okay. Sometimes, if I'm feeling really out there, I might do pancakes. Right. But usually, it's just down the middle,
0: usually. <laughs> So never fried food.
1: Um, I'm not so much into fried food in the morning. Although I do a lot of cycling, and sometimes if I'm doing loads and loads we'll, with my friends, we'll go and like eat way too many eggs for breakfast or something like that.
0: What is way too many eggs?
1: Probably five or six. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> oh my exactly. god! Yeah, yeah. A lot more, like <laughs> each.
0: <laughs> each.
1: I know. Wow. it's Disgusting. Wow. Well, no, I'm, I'm a slightly judgmental term, yeah.
0: but <laughs> <laughs> um, wow! And what they just—they don't even <laughs> hit the really. side. It. No, it's great. It's great.
1: So uh, <laughs> yeah, no. So I do. I do um, go on like training camps, cycling, because I race. Right. And if you're on training camp, you're riding six, seven hours a day. So you have to eat like seven thousand calories. It's
0: amazing. Wow. Uh, you've already you've already led me on to the first question without me really even asking you anything, which is fantastic. Uh, I've done a little bit of reading around. I get the impression that um, you've always got to be on the that you've always got to have things to do am I right about that that's
1: probably that's probably quite accurate yes
0: right yeah Um, and one of those things is is training hard
1: so yeah I do cycling I also play cricket yeah that's quite recent actually but I play for the university and cycling I do for another team
0: you seem very sort of laid back when you tell me that. I'm, I'm basically sort of sat here going, God, where do you find the time? <laughs> um, is that is it something that you just have to do?
1: I think so. I think it, actually, to be a musician, you actually have to be pretty fit, I think, especially to be a cellist. I think it's th- probably the most physical, most physically demanding of any instrument because you have uh, well obviously a double bass is bigger for example but a cello is so much more virtuosic and the demands are much higher and you do a lot more of it and a piano everything is much more balanced you don't have to kind of muscle it quite so much and you don't have to do that a lot with the cello but it's definitely more sort of demanding in that way than the violin for example
0: what are you muscling I realise that that's just an expression yeah. but as in what what is it that you're doing with the cello that you're not having to do with the piano
1: so some try- to make a big sound Sometimes you just need to uh, put more weight into the into the string, and well, most it's of not relaxation because
0: it's not a mechanical right. Exactly, at riot. exactly. Yeah. you
1: know, with a piano, you can pretty much make a big sound pretty easily. That's not really the challenge. But with a cello, projecting over an orchestra or or even over a piano, you for long periods it's quite taxing. I think.
0: But the thing that I can't really get my head around. Is that it, it demands? Uh, the physical training the the cycling I mean I get understand why you want to cycle because I like cycling but not for seven hours a day Um, I don't get how you can Separate the time because you need a lot of time for both, yeah. don't you, in order to be at the top of your game?
1: Yeah. So um, I don't normally do seven hours. That's if I go okay. away on a trip. But I think how many quite, hours
0: do you normally do them? Uh,
1: uh, I don't know. It varies from day to day. Right. So sometimes I go out with people. Sometimes I'll just squeeze something in early morning or something. But um this is I've, what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, just early I, yeah. morning. Yeah. You've always
1: got to be doing... Yeah, OK. So I've, I um, didn't go down the kind of typical musician route. Lots of musicians go to a music school. They sort of focus just on music. Then they go to music college and study just their instrument there. I never did that. So I went to a normal school and did a lot of sport. That was my sort of made love as a child so I got up early and did my practice before school and then I did school and then I did sport after school and I think I've always been in that sort of state of mind and then I went to university and studied an academic music degree so I had to fit my cello in around that or rather fit my degree in around the cello actually as as it turned out so I think I've been very used to time management in that way, and I find that the three musical things I do, so cello, composing, and conducting, all feed into one another, so it doesn't really feel like they take away from one another ever.
0: Um, They're not competing?
1: No, no, and I tend to work really well in a project-based kind of uh, system, so for example with composition... Last summer I went away to with and Friends, didn't take my cello and just spent three weeks writing really all the music I needed to for this year and then came back prepared for a series of concerts. So I work better, sort of intensely focusing on one of those at a time.
0: You're a complete finisher as well, aren't you? Clearly. <laughs> there, there's, no, there's no project that's left unfinished, is there?
1: Generally, yeah. <laughs> no, I no. think I wouldn't bother starting it if I wasn't going to finish it. <laughs>
0: Um, are you aware of how unusual that is to hear someone say? Do you know, do you, do, do, are you aware of how that comes across? It, it comes across in a not good way. No,
1: I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm second-guessing okay, now.
0: No, but it's unusual. Actually,
1: uh-huh. You
0: know, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this at this hour starting on this project and and I'm going to finish it this particular I mean that's quite that discipline is uh, unusual. Yeah
1: but I think it's very necessary for a musician because I mean in the simplest sense if you have a concert on a certain date you have to have finished the project of preparing for that concert by that date otherwise you have to go on stage and embarrass yourself. Um
0: um, so, tell me about, you've got some concerts coming up first, tell me about them first.
1: So, the concerts I've got coming up in the next few weeks are with my father, James Lisney, and we're doing a recital of solo Bach, um, a Bach-Gamba sonata, so that's originally for viola da gamba and harpsichord we're doing it for cello and piano and then the Chopin cello sonata and the Brahms D major sonata which is originally the violin sonata in G Um, and the solo Bach we're doing or I'm doing is the Bach Chacon which I've arranged from the violin partita so it's really it's very much a concert of arrangements although the Chopin is originally for cello and piano
0: and uh, where?
1: Uh, so we've got one at Cheltenham in the Pitville Pump Room Mm -hmm. on the the 8th of May sorry um, and then St George's Bristol on the 19th of May, and then the South Bank Centre in the Purcell Room on
0: the 8th of June. Wowzers! Wowzers! Wow, that massive and grand and exciting.
1: Yeah, very exciting. Very excited. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, not dawned. I, I don't get any sense that it might be daunting unless I'm actually making you feel daunted now well
1: question. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's daunting um, I suppose this far out there's a little bit of the sort of idea that yes this is a, this is a big project it needs to be needs to be really really good but by the time I get closer to that hopefully I've gone over that bump and I'm just feeling excited to play at the moment I'm thinking it's quite exciting we're playing some of that music on in tune on Radio 3 as well just before the concerts and that's actually more scary because you don't play the whole recital which is kind of my my comfort yeah. zone I know how to present a recital you've with an audience got, and
0: You've only got four minutes on there Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly, yeah. and you haven't got the rapport with, with a hall full of people no. and it's very
0: No, I can see how unusual. it's terrifying because it's yeah. cold and detached and dead uh, <laughs> and there are people behind glass and you don't know whether they're laughing or crying <laughs> or really listening Yeah um, <laughs> Uh, I have
1: very happy memories of the Pitbull Pump Room. I've done quite a few concerts there because my dad has a series, the Masterworks series there, and I, it was the first, one of the first concerts that I did a full recital in, and I sort of, it was a big, uh, seminal moment in my development as a cellist, I think, Like musically and
0: in what way? sort of mature. You've used the word seminal. That's like a, that's a key that, word for me, a, which means mm. let's just crawl all over that kay. one. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's open the door think, on that one while I'm. <laughs> (laughs) sugar in my coffee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was was 15, and it was the first of a little series of concerts where my dad and I were playing, I think, the Steinbach-Gamba Sonata, actually, we're playing the Ratmaninoff Sonata and some Stravinsky. And before then, I'd really played mostly just the odd piece in a concert, rather than doing a whole concert. And preparing that, Whole span of a recital, the whole evening, it's quite different, and it ha- and it gives you quite a different experience of performing. Because if you only play for five, ten minutes, you don't necessarily get the chance to really get into it until you know what that feeling's like, and then you can hopefully summon it up some sort of straight away. But I think earlier on, I didn't know um, what it was like to present a full recital. and It's very different.
0: And what is that feeling like, as somebody who? Well, no, I didn't play a recital. Yeah in my teens and uh, it went on for ages I don't remember I don't remember it being a positive experience so what is that what is that feeling like then that you're trying to summon up
1: for me it was I think liberating and entirely engrossing so I was um, it's almost like all the baggage of trying to play this music was gone and all you have to concentrate on is just letting it flow through you and communicating the music and there's no real effort and, but at the same time you're entirely engaged
0: It sounds like an almost meditative state
1: Sort of, but like an incredibly active one Right Yeah
0: And what is your perception of the audience at that stage?
1: Mixed. So I don't think I generally notice the audience. I don't look out at the audience and think, well, you know, he looks bored. Right. Or, okay. Or <laughs> that, that's
0: kind of what I meant. I, I, I wondered if you saw them, It's at different. That moment. Obviously, it, you're aware that they're there. Yeah.
1: Sometimes you can tell if there's tension and if people are really if people are really listening. But also in some concert halls, you cannot see them because it's completely dark. Some and you're really lit, and in others you can see them a lot. And to be honest, I don't really mind. But it is, I think you do feed off an audience if they are really focused.
0: Um, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, you talked about in an interview that I'd read, you talked about different sounds and how you were uh, using this part of your career to develop your own sound. That's what I think I read. Okay. You're looking at me now. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't ride that. Uh, but I think you did. Um, and actually I spent I spent some time at the Catchture and Tele competition last year. And I heard endless cellos over a three-day period. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a clarinetist. I'm not a cellist. And I don't. I, I feel a certain amount of imposter syndrome when talking to a string player because I just think well, I don't really understand how you do this. I, don't, I mean, I understand how you do it, but I don't. Yeah. I don't get it. Um, and what struck me was that there are a variety of different qualities of sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which people have a preference for? Yeah. And I can't pinpoint what is a a quality of sound and what is an error. Do, do you see what I mean? So yeah. I wonder whether I wonder whether you can give me a primer for different types of sound production oh, it's a terribly tough one but do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah
1: so I mean starting from the very beginning there's a lot of factors that go into the exact sound that you make at any moment so the cello itself makes a difference the type of string you have the bow that you have the type of hair that you have on the bow the type of rosin that you have on the hair and like on a very basic level I think people decide to play with different amounts of rosin on their bow and that changes their sound it makes it more individual That I, pres- I don't use very much. Everybody's always scandalised that I don't put rosin on every day. Why are
0: they they scandalised?
1: Because some people just think they they have to put rosin on every day. Right. But I just don't. um, That's kind of one level. And then on another level, I think, bow technique. So the bow is probably the the biggest um, influence on the, the sound that you're making. So pressure, speed, the position on the string... Um, how you shape between every note, how you release, how you uh, how you kind of attack the notes, and then with the left hand, it's the part of the finger that you use to project, to depress the string can change the sound, as can you know the type of vibrato you use because using vibrato gives you over and undertones, and you can influence whether you're sort of biasing your resonances to the lower spectrums or to the upper spectrums. And that can really change the tension and the colours in the sound. And if you have, um, I think, if you have a big, big palette of all those colours, you can be so much more vivid in everything you play. And you can play a huge range of music and communicate it all. And
0: um, presumably, if the finger is just rocking once, if you're changing the, the position of the finger on the string, you uh, Aside from the vibrato, if you are playing the same note over again but using a different position of finger, then you're also changing the colour and the texture of the. Yeah, as well.
1: you could do that. Like a like a timbrel trill on a on a brass instrument or can you do timbrel trills on the clarinet?
0: I don't know what timbrel trill.
1: Oh timbrel? Like when you, you can do a trill between the same note
0: but just change the fingering. Do they do that? I think you can. Yes, I, I think, think I think yeah. you probably can. It's quite, I'm not a professional. I gave up in university. Oh well.
1: It's definitely a brass instrument thing. I don't know right. if woodwind players do that.
0: Um, but
1: you could do that. I don't think people often do. But you could. People do more like change, change the speed of a barato.
0: So actually, are you saying in a very indirect way, though, indirect way, that you can't answer my question because there are so many, so many uh, different things?
1: I think so. And everything is on a spectrum as well. So it's not a sort of on off switch it's a whole, a whole range of infinite numbers of different colours
0: um, Can you give me a primer around those instrumentalists who have had an impact on you in terms of their sound? Uh,
1: yes, so I think I'm quite unusual in that I haven't been that influenced by cellists mm-hmm. but there are a few who, who have influenced me in certain sounds so uh, Rostropovich has this famous sort of velvety, chocolatey, big sound, and I think I've tried to kind of achieve that, but sometimes sometimes I might want the kind of incredible clarity that someone like Janos Starker gets out of the cello, especially low down, um, but I've actually been more inspired by, and I think influenced by pianists violinists. So I think often my sound sometimes sounds more uh, more clear like, like a piano or like a violin and that's partly me. It might be partly my cello. My cello happens to be very clear down low and not sort of incredibly rumbly like some cellos are. But I think it also suits me.
0: Was, uh, were the instruments of Rostropozzi playing on, were they quite rumbly as well?
1: I think he had a particular, I can't remember from. the name of the cello, but it was an Italian cello and it was particularly rich. had an incredibly dark, rich colour as well, right. visually. Um, but yeah, every cello is different. This is a seraphim and it's its very, um, it can be very silvery up top, and incredibly clear Um but it's also got a richness and a a range of colour. That's the most important thing in an instrument, is the range, um, I think. Um,
0: I need to drink coffee, I'm sorry, bear with. When did you first hear Rostropovic play?
1: I never heard him live. it was probably recordings of sort of great Russian pieces, Shostakovich, Prokofiev. And I think it was probably quite early on, because I think when I wanted to listen to those pieces, I'd have found him when, and found those recordings. When
0: was that? that that's really the question you have asked. A, but, Sorry.
1: So when was I learning Shostakovich concerto? Probably when I was 13 or so. So I probably had listened to it before then. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't a particularly geeky cello child. I was mostly researching Venice and stuff. Other than that I was doing. I could. Have t- I could have told you, like, you know, <laughs> the training regime for being a 400 meter hurdler. If you wanted, that's what I did as well. But um yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. Thinking, yeah, that's was my oh.
0: track. Yeah. Were you a prefect at school?
1: No, God, I was yeah, no. Oh, no, I wasn't
0: into the work at did school you, at did all. Did you get to me to badge? No. Great. fine
1: No, no. Yeah. I didn't do.
0: Not one of the Homework. <laughs> you didn't do homework. <laughs> not, not future man. Right. okay. Um,
1: I didn't have time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exam's <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> fine. You engine, but no. <laughs> um, do you remember? Do you remember that moment when you first heard heard that recording? Uh. I'm just wondering what impact. It's,
1: it's funny. I think I was just more excited by the piece. I've always been more excited by the piece, by the composer's vision than anybody else's kind of realization of, of something, because that's where I've always started. I've always looked at the music, at the, the score first, and thought, "What am I going to do with this? You know, what, what does he mean? What can I do?" And I've been less, less sort of influenced by listening to things and thinking yeah I'd like to play that I'm more I'm much more likely to be excited by looking at some music and seeing possibilities
0: where does that object that's a very objective view mm-hmm. uh somebody like me means I can't ask you about that, that, that word necessarily. Mm. But I wonder where that that uh, pleasure that you derive from opt- taking an objective approach comes from.
1: Is it an objective approach, or is it more a um, kind of more like an abstract approach? So I'm I'm actually looking I'm looking at something that doesn't exist yet because I'm excited about how I might play something. It's almost and sci- trying to play
0: it. It's almost scientific. Um, yes.
1: Yeah, I suppose it is. Like, I want to discover this piece. Yeah. I don't want to be shown. I'm not ex- excited by being shown. You know, a theory that's a theorem that's already been lined up. I'm excited by looking at the possibilities. Yeah, I suppose it is quite scientific. What were your
0: other academic interests? Um, I, mean, I know that you didn't do very much homework. Um,
1: I did. Um, I'm sure you must have done some. I did, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was. I liked history and I, I, li- I quite liked maths and science and things, but I ended up doing Latin and Greek for my A-levels and music.
0: Wow. So, okay. But
1: they were quite mathematical, quite analytical, yes. translating but also creative, so I quite like that. Yeah.
0: Uh, so the Shostakovich you were telling me about the, the challenging
1: Yeah, yeah, first challenging uh,
0: What excited you about that?
1: I think I, I loved the technical challenge, I loved the virtuosity, and I liked the kind of rawness of that piece. Um, it's it's also got it's got a beautiful slow third movement, which is an, an entirely a cadenza, and it gets faster and faster and more exciting and more kind of crazy. And I loved that. My my current kind of favourite concerto is actually the Prokofiev symphony concerto, which is similar to the Shostakovich but big and it's also it's more lyrical as well and less cynical.
0: Less cynical. I
1: think so. Yeah. How do you mean by less cynical? It's it's. I think it's more open, whereas Shostakovich is very kind of... bitter
0: okay okay um, yeah which i also. i I, I see what you mean and actually i think that's probably a reason why i quite like it (laughs) because it because it appeals to my rather bitter and resentful
1: no i yeah exactly i do love it as well and the second concerto is dark there's grit in it yeah yeah that's always just there's always grit whereas sometimes with the coffee epic there isn't
0: Uh, and what do you? How do you approach something like the Elgar then? If you if you if your approach, approach works from an abstract perspective, mm. how do you how do you approach something like the Elgar?
1: The same, I think. Really? And I think I pro- approach every piece of music from to a brand new piece that's never been played before. I hope that I approach them all exactly the same way.
0: Do you know... I asked because uh, I was talking to Adam Zarba about this. I think I can... I'm terribly sorry, my phone rang, which is terribly rude. I would normally say to people... i um, switch it on. Uh, um, I was talking to Adam Zarbo from The Majesty Collective in the last podcast where... Um, We were talking about the difficulty with the Elgar and how actually Jacqueline Dupre has essentially that recording for EMI has cast a shadow on um, the listening experience and presumably on the performing experience too. And I, I just wonder whether there is an element of you that might approach you with a certain amount of trepidation. Because of all of that Maybe I'm just too naive on. for that. Well, I no, I like. wouldn't. If, if, if you're not, I wouldn't describe it as naive. I describe it as being very focused. But you're saying that you, that you tra- I think there's no trepidation. Anything,
1: I, yeah. I love that performance and it's not necessarily how I want to play yeah. but I know there, there are probably some things that I do but I and in fact that performance was very inspiring to me jackie Jacqueline Dupree was very inspiring to me when I was a very young cellist when I was five or six starting out but um so, yeah, things change. I, for example, when I first started, I was listening to Jacqueline Dupre's Barcello Suites when I really when I was four or five before I started, and I, my mum and dad put on somebody else. As a little test, and I was really angry. I wouldn't listen to any of the other. But now I really don't like her cello suites.
0: <laughs> you do, you <laughs> so, don't like? That. No. Uh, in what, in, uh, I realise that it's not personal, but uh, I know so she's dead. But uh, what is it you don't like about now? What, can you account for that shift? Uh, I
1: don't know. Maybe don't like is a is a is a uh, no, sort okay. of strong word. I think.
0: But how is that? How is? They don't view
1: necessarily. necessarily for me, they are... I don't want to sort of get into technicalities about... I think maybe they don't dance enough, or maybe how... I, I want to feel them as quite light pieces, and uh, I think maybe they're, they're heavier, slightly more romantic in the way she plays them.
0: What is your... Without wishing to do 2D, do, what is your hesitation is that you think... What is your hesitation around technicalities that I wouldn't be interested in it, or that it's, it's pushing you... Um, I just don't
1: think you? they're very important.
0: Right, OK. Yeah... Uh, what makes you think that?
1: I don't know if it's important what I, as one cellist, think of other interpretations of music right now because I'm might change and I could easily change my mind you know if I went to go and play one of them for a while and I worked on it for a while I could it will change like in this recital series we're playing the Chopin cello sonata which we recorded um, how long ago is it now in eight years when I was 18 we recorded it and I do actually still like that recording but I play it differently now so I think recordings are interesting because they are exactly that they're a record of how you play something at that time in that place with that person whatever with that recording engineer and I think when people try and say that you know this is the this is the recording of the shop and this is my kind of statement about this piece forever I think that's it's a bit limiting.
0: Uh, the reason I ask you is is because for me, I'm fascinated by exactly that thing that you described, the fact that actual recording is a statement of a particular moment in time, and effectively no more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be really distinguishing characteristics about that particular recording uh, and certainly with the likes of uh, Chip and and the L that's definitely the case for me and you illustrated yeah. it around about the, the Bart stuff um, and I ask, I uh, sort of explore it a bit more because actually I think it's an element of classical music that people don't really talk about at the moment uh, and, I, and I think that's what makes it even more fascinating do, do you see what I mean? Um, I think people are quite frightened about the detail, and I don't want people to be frightened about the detail. Really, yeah. that's that's really where that comes from. It wasn't wanting to to get you to commit to something, <laughs> only to embarrass yourself. Later. Um, you not only do you cycle, uh, play the cello, but you also compose. <laughs> um, is there anything that you don't do? Uh, well, tell me about your composing work. How important is that to you? How do you decide? I'm doing this now Um,
1: so usually I'll write a piece because I need to write it for, for somebody for an ensemble for a particular occasion and the way that I usually work is that progress is quite slow at first and I'll just sort of do it all I'll just think about it really and then once I've sort of hit on the kind of initial idea usually for me I can then just go and it, and it sort of just comes really easily if I think it's a good idea and um, and then once I've written a piece which will probably just take I don't know a week it doesn't matter um, but it'll just come pretty easily then I'll come back and change things and work on improving things but I, I do tend to write in a big a big sweep and then' Um, I think when I started composing and as I developed as a composer, it, I found that very interesting as an interpreter of music because it's very easy if you, if you just play music, just, if you, if you only play music, to... Um, underestimate composers sometimes I think people are very very quick to say oh you know he, he he wrote that this time but you know another time he must have just forgotten to write this and it can't be different and if you're a composer and you've sort of agonized over exactly why that bar goes this way and that one goes that way I think it just reminds you that actually somebody has thought about this a lot and maybe <laughs> given credit and yeah, Editing by analogy is something that really annoys me. So, How do you mean? So when editors say, oh, it must be like this the second time because it was the first time. Oh. And that really annoys me because I'm sure yeah. it's not right. <laughs>
0: no, I'd agree with you. I think um, my, uh, my equivalent, well, I don't want to use the word analogy, but my equivalent is that uh, I used to uh, make... Uh, well, I still do I make videos about stuff I used to work in comms and PR and I used to make my video and I would shoot interviews with people which were uh, not so serendipitous conversational uh, a lot of things were revealed in those interviews which hadn't been planned for questions hadn't been asked nobody knew that it was going to be revealed. but it was really fantastic content because look that's what they've just told you and you would edit it all together and then somebody else would come along and go no we want to lose that uh, okay. and I think you weren't even there you weren't even there at the interview you're not really engaged in this process actually all you're really thinking about is the end product mm. and, and there is something in, um, yeah. there is something there, there, there is a part in the creative process yeah. I think where something emerges that nothing's been planned for
1: yeah.
0: and, and they're the real nuggets mm. uh, I'm not entirely sure that's exactly the same as what it's you're saying interesting,
1: though. and it's, a, it's kind of related I think to the to the creative gap between composers locked away in their sort of towers and performers on the stage and the audience off the stage and I think that combining those is a bit better maybe not the audience but um
0: <laughs> not on a formal basis <laughs> because obviously the work needs to be done but you can come in later
1: yeah so as a composer I'm I'm very interested by creating pieces that I can perform or at least be involved in the performance because firstly i find it really nerve-wracking sitting in the audience and letting other people do it yeah. Um, yeah. but also because I do, I play the cello and I can conduct I can do be involved in most
0: performances you like to be in control <laughs> sorry I know that sounds very yes, aggressive I do, yes I do I don't I do. mean it in aggressive um, my way. Ideas,
1: yeah I but find it difficult to well, I, do, I think I just have an idea of how it to you want don't it need to be defensive
0: about that yeah. I know it sounds like a really aggressive <laughs> question but it wasn't in that way uh, I spoke to some other composers at PRS uh, a few weeks ago who talked about exactly that same thing when they've been commissioned to write something and and they've spent all of this time on their own in a bubble producing this thing that they really care about and then they have to hand it over and sit in the audience and I absolutely so, so, you, you've had all of this control beforehand and then in an instant it's no longer yours and that, that's why I say why would wouldn't you want to hang on to that sense of control?
1: But that's also one of the really special things about composing. So ideally, you should be able to put everything into your score that somebody else needs to play what you want. And I think every composer is is, is on a spectrum of how much freedom you give a give a musician. So some composers give want the musicians to improvise. Some of them want you to just play the music that they have written on the page. Stravinsky said, "Just play the notes." I think. Um, and I think everybody's on that spectrum somewhere and you need to decide how much you're going to notate into the music and how much how you can influence a musician to actually have their own ideas and put themselves into it. So I think for a performance to be convincing, the musician playing it has to be really convinced, and they have to feel that they are invested as well. So I think that's quite a quite an important actually, part of. What
0: you're, descri- what you're describing there is almost like a contract. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the manuscript is a contract, and there are these moments in the manuscript where, uh, say, like in a period where there's uh, improvisation. Where the composer is almost challenging him or herself to, I'm going to let go now, Yeah. you take over.
1: But what constraints do, do you lose? Because hardly ever did it just say, right, improvise. <laughs> you did not really yeah, you give something, yeah. Like, yeah so there's, you know, all the way along, you could, be, you could give them a whole load of notes, you could give them <laughs> ideas, you could give them... I don't know, a chord structure, or you could just be writing conventional music with no improvisation and you could either write every single phrasing in or you could leave it slightly more open and allow people to phrase, but I think one of the things that is tricky about contemporary music now is that we don't have an accepted way of playing it necessarily. So if you look back to um, how we play classical or baroque music for example, We know that we tend to phrase off um, gracefully and all that kind of thing, stylistic things like that, Um, bow stroke, whatever contemporary music doesn't have that tradition and that i think that's actually really refreshing because there's loads of different people composing but it also does mean i think that you have to be slightly more specific in the way that you notate so you get what you want
0: um i'm sorry i've just been thinking about something else that i wanted to ask you really struggling uh, but it will eventually come out. oh that was it um What are the kind of composition projects that excite you? I don't mean those that you've done already, but sort of the ideas. What sort of ideas may tend to get you excited?
1: So for me, I think the most exciting thing is the players and the combinations of instruments. So my favourite sort of thing would be something London's have only um, with a combination of different sounds. So I like to have strings but also woodwind and brass and percussion and stuff um, what I find difficult is if people ask for music on a theme of something or music about something or can you be influenced by this can you be inspired by that because I might have been given the, the musicians that, you know which instruments I'm writing for and immediately had ideas because that's the most exciting thing for me and then I have to try to fit that into a box and I'm not so excited by that
0: uh, So you're driven by forces that's yeah, your your exactly. primary yeah, your my, primary driver, my, my um, and in terms of in terms of material, where are you starting? In terms of the compositional process, where are you starting?
1: I start with a, a tiny musical idea, probably a little motif. Um, yeah, and that pretty much everything will come from that, or things that that implies. Or maybe two ideas against one another or something like that. The way that I write is very very thematically led and what I'm trying to do in my composition at the moment is incorporate more different colours into that because I've been... Maybe quite conventional and I think now would be a good time to explore, go a bit crazy and then I can always distill it into something more focused. So
0: many words though that I need a definition. So when you say um, you need to be careful about the words you I really do, yeah. Because I'm just like you know, on? Too many buzzwords Uh, First of all, what do you mean by conventional?
1: Um, so Um Not necessarily, yeah, so unconventional, maybe, if I turn that question around, so trying to be less conventional, might be using extended techniques on an instrument, but it might be just using more unusual combinations, um... And that's not exactly new, but sometimes I think maybe my orchestration is a particular is a particular colour I'm comfortable in. I, there are certain textures that I'm comfortable in, and it would be good to break out of those and have a bigger range.
0: Uh, and the inevitable question is then, when you've done that, mm. how are you going to know that you've done it enough? Who's going to be providing you with the feedback loop, yeah, such it's that you an then go, question. okay, yeah, right, well, I've, I've, I've done that.
1: I think Should one of I the things, it? yeah one of the things about being a musician is that you have to be your own feedback loop and I'm very much a believer of that. I think I've always been quite quite independent in all of the things that I've done. So as a cellist from quite early, I, rep- I, I was more interested in sort of just trying stuff and seeing how it, how it worked out and listening back and then taking it somewhere else rather than being told how to get a predetermined outcome. And I think the composition is probably similar. Every piece that I write, I think I develop as a composer. And I'd, still, I'd say I'm sort of relatively early stages as a composer compared to as a cellist, I feel much more confident as a cellist. And um, yeah. So as a composer, it's changing all the time.
0: Do you see um, Do you see lots of opportunity given that there has been um, a lot of attention given to a diversity in classical music programming.
1: Sort of female
0: composers yeah. I and mean, things. Do you, do you look on on what has happened over the past two or three years? I'm not suggesting that work done, but do you look on that and think there's an opportunity there? You know, there's there, there a there's a developing channel for somebody like me.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think it's a bit of a it's a tricky one because I don't really believe in sort of quotas and things. But I think that because of the establishments that we have, they probably are necessary because otherwise we fall into the same patterns. I think what's also important though is to play, play music by female composers who are not now contemporary because there were loads and they've just been sort of written out of the history books a little bit. So I'm making a bit more of an effort to do that and to research the music. And there's a huge database online which is really useful. Um, As for current composers and current conductors, actually, I'm not too keen to be part of the, look, we've got female conductors and composers bandwagon, Um, partly because I think if it comes across as a fad, fads don't last. Um, And partly because I think it's happening and and it can happen quite organically. But I think it's great that there's a push. I think sometimes... Um, sometimes the organisations that do it sort of sidestep the actual problem. So there are quite a few festivals who say that they have plenty of women composers, but they've only commissioned them to write little pieces, and they've commissioned men to write the big pieces. And I think that's quite um, that's quite unfair because they're still they're, they're trying to say that they have this equality, and they don't. And I don't think that's right. Before.
0: But presumably you, you that—the fact that it's moving mm-hmm. in that direction—you mm-hmm. yeah, uh, see an opportunity.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I haven't. I, people are saying, "Oh, what's it like being a female composer?" But, uh, I'm not going to ask I know you, that. you didn't. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Because you really I just respect. say, I, just, I don't. I've never been a male one. I just, I don't know. Um, what a question!
0: But we have you been um, asked that
1: that? Yeah, loads. Oh, no. oh God, and conducting. So what's it like being a female conductor? I don't know. No, oh, I'm um, choking
0: on my own rage. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask, but. Um, <laughs> it's
0: just,
1: I know, but um, oh, I've lost my thread now. Um, I was you
0: asking you oh, if you thought that you saw an opportunity. Oh, yeah, no, I'm saying yeah.
1: I have never felt discriminated against, basically. And I think that. People, most people in the music business are not deliberately discriminating and I think it's yeah it's exciting that there are not doors closed particularly the composers I think conducting has some way to go actually I think there are lots of doors that are still closed um, and sort of well-known conductors come out and say oh women can't conduct. Um, and that doesn't do any good to anybody so um, but composing is doing
0: really well uh, we haven't really talked about conducting True. No. I need to check the time um, you do conducting as well? I we do. What is the experience of conducting in comparison to that that is required for composing?
1: To composing, gosh, I would see that they were very different.
0: Yes. Um, even. Because I see a shift, a necessary shift, going from a very insular experience, it, oh, you know, it's a very yes, lonesome no, experience. It is a lonely experience.
1: Yes, but so is practicing the cello quite a lonely thing. Yeah. To,
0: to shift, okay, so to shift from those two disciplines yeah. to standing in front of the orchestra and actually commanding yeah. a lead. Yeah. Um, uh, What is necessary for you to achieve that shift?
1: I really love doing it, and I think the main thing is that I'm, I love the music that I've chosen, I've been very lucky, because I set up my own orchestra, I can kind of be music director, so I can choose what we do, which makes my job very easy, because I do music that I love, and I desperately want to make everybody in the orchestra love, so that they play it, and that's my entire motivation.
0: It seems seems a very pragmatic approach. We're doing what I want to do, okay? And that,
1: I just, I mean, when I play a concert on the cello, I want, I I just want the people in audience to love the music that I'm playing as much as I do. That's, it sounds very kind of you know do-goody or whatever, but I just like really love this piece and I want to convince you of it. Um, and it's exactly the same when I'm conducting, except that I'm convincing the orchestras and enabling them. I feel like as you're a conductor, yes, you're a leader, you have to be kind of inspiring, but you're mainly enabling them to let go and perform and you're just helping I love the rehearsing I, I, I find that fascinating um, so you've got um, say you've got 12 first violins and you want them all to do something in the same way and they'll all respond to different, different uh, ways of putting something so some of them will really respond if you say um, I, want a, I want a really fluffy sound here and some of them will get that straight away and some of them will respond much better if I say, you know, can you use a really light bow, lots of bow on the fingerboard and a sort of gentle vibrato, blah blah blah. Some and will respond, people,
0: to exactly. others will respond to description. scratch
1: Yeah, and I find in the woodwind and the brass generally, especially if it's one to a part, it's much better to be sort of metaphorical when you're when you're asking them to do something. But with strings, people will interpret that differently. So you try everything. And I think that's something that's really interesting about in fact all kinds of teaching is communicating to different people the same thing and sometimes you need to do that in a lots of different ways
0: that must be exhausting Mm-hmm. Or I think maybe I, you don't I, think about
1: No, it. I, I love it. I think usually the orchestral projects I've done have been quite full ons, but um, it's worth it. Yeah. The hardest thing I think about it is like planning rehearsals and timing rehearsals and things. So, the last sort of orchestral conducting thing I did was a charity concert that combined students from 15 years old up to professionals from all over Europe. They, we had people from London orchestras and Vienna Phil, Leipzig Gewandhaus, all over the place. They all came together on one day, one rehearsal, Mahler Nine. We rehearsed. The students have been rehearsing all week, but that last rehearsal, we had three hours to cover the whole symphony, really, because some of the players have not been there. And. The hardest thing about that rehearsal was making sure that we did cover everything and judging where you have to leave something and trust that it will happen in a concert and where, no, actually we do need to work on this now and get to the end of this sort
0: of 75-minute so piece. there's an element of time management. There's there's an element of um, being aware of where your insecurities might be or your yes. hesitations are and, and also having to trust people who you've not met before.
1: Yeah. Oh well, yeah God I had met them because I'd chosen them, yeah. but, but, but yeah. in that moment, but exactly. Yes, yeah. and you've got 80, 85, 86 people, or whatever it is. Are you aware stage.
0: of that? That the, the, you know, when you when you unpack all of that and you lay it all out, as we are now, it sounds pretty horrific. Yeah, you're making it sound worse. <laughs> this podcast is going really well um, you've been listening to the Thoroughly Good classical music podcast available on Spotify iTunes and Audio Boom. to get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me